three-pointer, Maxwell, yes! The Rockets are NBA champions! Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Every Rockets fan and Houston sports fan, you better know that moment we heard off the top. That, of course, was Gene Peterson and Jim Foley calling the first of the Rockets championships. And this felt like as perfect of a time as any to relive the Rockets' golden era, especially with the Rockets holding the best record in the NBA at the All-Star break. How about that? And the Astros coming off their title and aiming for a Rocket-style repeat. Three years ago on our show, we reminisced about Clutch City with the Rockets beat writer for the Houston Post during that golden era, Robert Falkoff. He wrote two books on those teams, Dreamland, the inside story of the 93-94 Houston Rockets championship season, and Rudy T's bio, A Rocket at Heart, My Life and My Team. We also just heard the news that Rudy T is a Hall of Fame finalist, so hopefully this is finally the year for Rudy Tomjanovich. Falkoff joined me and my co-host R.G. Seal for a joyous hour-long conversation looking back at the back-to-back titles. We started off by asking him about his most indelible memories from the 93-94 season. I guess the uh, the thing that I would, I would think about is that season had such a spectacular beginning, a shaky middle, and then obviously a, a glorious ending. It, it was almost like a great book, the way the Rockets started 15-0 and right out of the gate showed that they were something special. They went to 22-1. and one. And then, believe it or not, you think a team that started 22-1 would maybe cruise through and, and you know win their division handily uh, or win the conference handily. And as it turned out, to tell you how good the Seattle Supersonics were that year, you know, the Rockets didn't even finish with uh, the you know, the best record in the West. They were the number two seed. Really, that wasn't so much because they struggled later on, although they did fall off the pace. They weren't going to go, you know, keep going, you know, with that 22-1 and pace. It was just that Seattle was an outstanding basketball team, too. And so, you know, when it got to the end, Seattle was the number one seed, the Rockets uh, number two seed. And it really wasn't until, and I can remember this so vividly, the Rockets going to Portland and, and pulling out the sweep over the Blazers in the first round and and then coming home and driving. They had a Saturday afternoon practice at the Summit to get ready for round two, which would be the, the Phoenix Suns. And just driving in from the airport, it was game five of Denver and Seattle, one seed against the eight seed. And, you know, we all just assumed, even though Denver had played very well, that, that Seattle would win at home and, and they would go on and, you know, and, and eventually maybe play the Rockets in the Western Conference Finals. And just driving in from the airport, I heard the final score that Denver had, had pulled out the, you know, the game. And, you know, you've seen the pictures probably, a lot of people, of Dikembe Mutombo just on the floor holding the basketball, just a tremendous upset. And then getting to the arena and just kind of for the first time feeling a verve of, Gosh, maybe this is the maybe this is Houston's year after all the heartache and the Astros in '86 and '81 and the Oilers, you know, falling had great teams but got beat uh, by the Steelers in those AFC Championship games and, and the Cougars, Houston Cougars, 
losing to North Carolina State, all the heartache, never having a, you know, what you call a quote unquote major championship in that city, that maybe this, you know, could be the year. And then the series, the second round starts, and boom, the Rockets lose to the Suns in game one. And they lose again in game two. And there was controversy because it was Mother's Day. The arena was not sold out. And so after the game, you had players criticizing, you know, the Rockets fans that they didn't show up. They didn't, they weren't really committed. And now you're down, you know, 0-2 and going to Phoenix. It seemed like it was over. And then just how they went to Phoenix just against all odds, winning against a really great Phoenix team that had Barkley in his prime and, and Kevin Johnson at the point. Uh, great, great Phoenix team. And winning game three and then winning game four, coming home, winning game five, and then eventually winning that series in seven. To lose your first two at home and come back and win that series, you know, I, I just think that just showed the resolve and the character that that, that that team was all about. And, of course, we go on. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there and let you ask another question. But, yes, some of the big indelible memories. It was just just the, the, the great start, the, the, the special way the season started, the way it ended, and then, you know, again, that, that little – period there after the first round when Seattle lost and this the realization that this is real this really could be Houston's time yeah we're going to come back to a couple of things that you were talking about but I, I want to take you back to maybe the key moment for the Rockets and for Rudy T you write about it extensively in Rudy's bio it changed the course of history the Rockets brass decide it's time to let go of coach John Chaney in 1992 and there's a meeting that day between longtime assistants Carol Dawson and Rudy with GM Steve Patterson. In the book, you take us right into the meeting. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? It was a midseason game. The Rockets had, uh, had lost a big, big lead uh, to, the, uh, to the Timberwolves. And the team was kind of slipping and sliding uh, all year. I guess the next morning at 8.30 in the morning, Steve Patterson had gotten a, a call from the owner at the time, Charlie Thomas. And Charlie just said, I want to make a move. Uh, we're going to change coaches. Uh, they had a meeting. They called in the two assistants, Rudy T. and and Carol Dawson, Rudy told me this uh, later that, you know, they had some small talk and they talked about the game the previous night. And finally, Steve just said, hey, guys, uh, this is over. Don is out. And we've got to have a head coach. We've got to go forward. Rudy and Carol were very loyal to Don Chaney. And Rudy, you know, they tried to argue for Don and it just wasn't going to work. And, you know, I can remember that you know, the quote, uh, Steve Patterson, that the Spurs had just changed coaches uh, uh, not too too long before that. Bob Bass was the general manager, and he took over on an interim basis. And then Steve just stood up and said, hey, guys, we've got to have a head coach. I'm not Bob Bass. You know, I'm not going to go down and, and coach the team. And so, yeah, it was uh, pretty much it was decided that they, they wanted Rudy to take it. And Rudy was reluctant to take it. Um, he was very content to have had a great playing career and to be an assistant coach and to be a, a Houston guy. But he talked to uh, to Carol, and, and and basically they they 
it's decide. Hey, if you don't take this job, Rudy, we may not have a job at all because you know they'll just they'll b- go get somebody and then they'll bring in their own assistants. At least this way, you know, we have some continuity. And so from that uh, kind of a, a, a moment of desperation, um, you know, Rudy Tomjanovich became the head coach of the Houston Rockets. Very, very much out of character with the ambitious head coaches that, that, that will just do anything that would, you know, do anything to get a head coaching job. And Rudy never campaigned for it, never even wanted it. He just took it because he, he had to and had a loyalty to the organization. And then, of course, you know, as we see, the rest is history. And a few years later, um, you know, he's holding up the trophy. Hey, I want to touch on that, Robert, again. Thanks for joining us. Because you're mentioning Rudy T there. What a lot of people seem to forget, because uh, he's gone down in coaching history in Houston, he was an interim coach in that 93 postseason. And they had very tough matchups, first against the Clippers and then against the Seattle Supersonics that went seven games. And, I mean, really, I remember even Rudy recounting uh, before that, you know, if that, that shot in game five versus the Clippers you know, by Vernon Maxwell doesn't go in and the Rockets are sent home packing after the first round. Who knows what happens with the uh, coaching uh, situation yeah. then if Rudy even comes back that next year? No, no, Rudy was the head coach. He got the job after the uh, the, the previous season, uh, after the season was over. He was the interim coach for the rest of the year. And then they gave him the job on a permanent basis. So he was he was the head coach for the 92-93 season. But I really agree with you. I think one of the, the biggest moments in in Rockets history was that first round playoff win, five games, went to the deciding game against the Clippers in the 92-93 season because it had been a dry spell. You know, the Rockets had been first round flops for several years and they couldn't break through and they had a tremendous finish. They were 14 and 16 that year at the 30 game mark. And they went on a tremendous run the last uh, half of the season. Something clicked in, and uh, but they got to the playoffs. They, uh, you know, they had uh, the Clippers, and and the Clippers were good then. That was Larry Brown, uh, and they took them to five games. Or Maxwell missed uh, Vernon Maxwell missed uh, a couple games there. I think three and four because of an injury. But he came back for Game Five on a Saturday afternoon, and they broke the ice and the tension of that series was so great because had they lost in the first round again, all that great work in the second half of that 92-93 season would have been wiped out. Everybody would have just said, same old Rockets. But uh, they won that. They broke the ice, the playoff ice. They went on and had a great seven-game series against Seattle. Uh, Lost, if I'm not mistaken, the home team won every game in that series. Seattle had home court. They won game seven at home. But it was a moment that I think the Rockets drew the line in the sand and said, yes, we are we are competitive. We can win. And so the, the sting of that loss in 93 to Seattle really carried them forward into the 93-94 season. And that's when they had the 15-0 start and eventually, of course, became the world champions. Yeah, I, th- I think that's important because that 93 season carried into the 94 season, like you said, for the start that happened there. And I wanted to uh, get back to Rudy T and his coaching again. Uh, uh, oftentimes he's he's called a player's coach. And is that kind of dismissing his, his coaching acumen? And then why do you think he was the perfect match for the Rockets at this time in their history? He was a player's coach, but he did it in such a way 
that, you know, he didn't believe confrontation was the way to get the most out of a player He because he had been a player. And so I guess he knew how he reacted to, you know, the browbeating coaches. Uh, instead of berating a guy, he would say, hey, Vernon, you, you know, you did this well. You're so quick. But if you play the pick and roll this way instead of that way, you know, look how much more effective you would be. So he would use that and try to try to always have the back of his players and feeling that that's how he would get them to play the hardest for him. And so, um, you know, that was his philosophy. Other guys do it differently, but uh, he believed in, in, in how he wanted to go about things. And he had, a, you know, a really uh, different personalities on his team, and he tried to punch the right buttons on all of them to get the most out of them. He had a great once-in-a-generation player in Akeem Olajuwon, and then he had the supporting the supporting cast, which fit. He had a philosophy about spacing. They played inside-out. They took it into Akeem. And once Akeem became a passer, and I think that's that was a key in their evolution from, you know, content, from pretender to contender, is that they played inside-out, and they got three point, good three-point shooters, and once a king would draw the double team and they would move the basketball and they would get, you know, good looks from three, they would make them. Uh, if teams then tried to go back and guard a three-point line, a, a three-point line, a king would wheel and deal. Nobody could stop him at that time, one-on-one. And so they had a they had a great uh, a great mix. And so you know, Rudy was the right time, right guy at the right time. Could you sense there was a special bond between the players of that 94 team as the season was going along? Was there a sense before even that 15-game winning streak to start the season that something special was happening? Or did it just sort of bubble up as, as the season went along? No, it really did go back to – I think they want something like – they want something – went on a tear like 40 out of the last 50. As I said, I remember they were 14 and 16 in 92-93. And then they just went on an unbelievable tear. I believe it was 40 out of 50 um, to end the season. And so when you win and you you know you have a way to win, you have a philosophy, you have a style, um, and they had guys that got along. And, and But now that was tested, again, uh, as as we got into the 93-94 season, it, it started great. Uh, you had Mario Ellie coming off the bench, doing whatever he could do. Uh, just, uh, you know, Otis was a good first lieutenant to Akeem. You had Maxwell and Kenny and little Scotty Brooks um, was the backup point guard to start the year. And then they had these rookies, uh, Robert Ory and Sam Cassell, who were not, you know, the highest draft picks, but really good players. And they knew that as the season went along, those guys were going to, were going to do well. And then, um, but the, the chemistry was really tested right before the trading deadline. They actually made a trade because they really weren't getting a lot of scoring from Ori, and they just felt like Akeem was having to do too much. And that's when they kind of wavered a little bit right around uh, in February there, and they they just decided, um, hey, uh, Sean Elliott was available. Great scoring, three-man. And so they made a trade. uh or tried to make a trade. Uh, Ori and Matt Bullard, who was in the in the deal because Bullard's salary fit for Elliott, and they had to tell those guys, "You guys are uh, you know going to Detroit," and 
but when Elliot came to uh, Houston, it was on a Saturday, and they had him at the hotel there across from the summit. We were ready to have the press conference, and then the press conference never happened. And Elliot had a kidney issue, and they were checking with the doctors, checking with the doctors. Finally decided we just cannot go through with the deal, and so the deal was rescinded. And imagine these guys, are key parts of your team, Ori and Bullard, now they're in Detroit. They have to come back to Houston, and you have to tell them, hey, guys, you're back on our team now, after basically saying, hey, uh, you know, we're going in a different direction. And so there really had to be a lot of soul-searching there. Bullard was particularly upset about it. He, he felt like he was going to be a free agent the next year. Initially, he went to Detroit, and he thought he was going to have a bigger role and, you know, I think have a good season, good finish, and then, you know, he would be an attractive uh, player on the, on the uh, free agent market. So, you know, he wasn't real happy about coming back, to be frank about it. And, you know, he'll tell you that now. Things smoothed out as time went on. But at the time, that was a very rocky situation. When you talk about upsetting your chemistry and taking two guys and, and sending them off and then the trade doesn't happen, it's aborted, and you bring them back into the fold, you know, that was tricky. And somehow they, they just tried to convince those guys, this is business. You know, we had an opportunity. We went for it. But it's not uh, anything against you guys. We think you guys are great. And if you weren't good players, we could never have, you know, had a trade for Sean Elliott, who was, uh, you know, an outstanding player at the time. And so they, they got those guys back into the fold and, uh, you know, finished the season relatively, you know, relatively well. And, you know, by the, by the, by the playoffs, they were, they were holding him. So, but a very, very, you know, unique situation. Another thing that was really unique about that team, and a lot of people may not realize this, they went through the entire season without a general manager. Can you imagine a, a, a world championship team they went until until basically the playoffs when they hired Bob Weinhauer. See, I think a lot of people, as time went on and Carol Dawson eventually became the general manager, I think people think back years later and think, oh, Carol Dawson was the general manager of that team. No, they didn't have a general manager all year. And so I, I think that's really one of the really one of the quirky things uh, about a team that wins a world championship and did not basically had a vacancy at, at the general manager position all season. One, one of the things that I think you mentioned in the book about the Ori deal that afterwards wasn't, weren't other teams coming to the Rockets and saying, well, we'll give you our junk because they thought Ori was so upset and the Rockets were just having a fire sale on Ori or they were going to have to get rid of him. Danny Manning, I think was one of the names that was mentioned. There were teams that probably thought, why do they want to get rid of Ori? Well, maybe, okay, uh, that deal didn't work out, but maybe they still want to, you know, maybe trade him and they're they're desperate to get rid of him. And so I think they, they had a few offers that were, or maybe teams calling that, uh, you know, with uh, bargain basement offers. But once the Elliott deal was rescinded, um, they, they were committed to going back to Ori. They, they liked Ori. The thing about Ori at that year, that was his rookie year, he wouldn't shoot. Um, he would pass up open shots and he was a very unselfish player. He did a lot of things. He could block shots. He was a great shot blocking, um, you know, three man, uh, three man, but he could run and jump. He was a great athlete, just 
and had a good had a good shot as we as we come to you know as we came to learn later when he made so many big shots uh, through the years. But he was a good shooter as a, as a rookie. Also, he just uh, he just really was reluctant to shoot the ball, and Akeem was having to do so much of the offensive work that they felt like, well, hey, we'll go get Sean Elliott, and that'll take a lot of pressure off Akeem. But defensively, Ori was better than Elliott, um, and and so they 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 were committed once they once they realized the deal was not going to happen. They were they said, hey, we can go back to Ori and Bullard, and we can we can move forward, and we can. We can still go a long way. I don't know that they felt like they could win it all, but at that time, but uh, they knew they were going to be in the mix. And then, really, when Seattle lost, um, then that really opened the door. I think it was a great and very fortunate that the Rockets ended up keeping uh, Robert Ory there uh, for the reasons you mentioned. Just, I think he was always a polarizing figure too, because he would have these great games, especially in the playoffs, and you know, but during the regular season. You know, he would have these games with minimal numbers and, like you said, was reluctant to take his shot. So he, he I was just kind of polarizing. But I also want to mention another uh, uh, rookie that you mentioned on, on the 93-94 team, uh, Sam Cassell. And he and mm-hmm. Kenny Smith really gave the Rockets a, quite a tandem at the point guard position. Can you kind of describe about the evolution of Sam Cassell that, that rookie season and how instrument, instrumental he became and how fearless he became during the playoffs hitting big shots? Yeah, no question. He, uh, he, they brought him along slowly. You know, he was, uh, he was a guy that really wasn't afraid of anything. Um, as I said, the season started, uh, um, Scotty Brooks was, uh, the number two and really Sam was the number three. He didn't, didn't really play that much. I remember March 1st was a, 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 a key date. I think Cassell at that time moved ahead of, uh, Brooks and and it was going to be Kenny and and, and Sam basically and Scotty was kind of kind of moved out of the picture at that point um, and Scotty had been a real fan favorite and a, and a really gutsy player we know what what he was and what he's gone on to do and in, in coaching now uh, but Sam just had this fearlessness and his his strength and attack in the basket and that was really something that they needed um, uh, to, to you know, Kenny was more of a of a spot up shooter, uh, not that strong on the drive. Although you know he was very quick, and so the tandem or the you know the combination of, of Smith and Cassell, and then Vernon was you know Vernon could could shoot it outside, he could drive. So they had the, they had those three guards, and that was a good you know that was a good uh, combination in the backcourt. Um, Ori was playing well. Thorpe was doing his thing. Elijah Wan was Elijah Wan, the best player in the game. Uh, Ellie off the bench. So, you know, they did, as it turned out, they did have enough offense and with the spacing and the three-point shooting. But Sam Cassell was kind of the ingredient. When they made when they wanted to make the Ori trade, Cassell was not in the picture. Once he got into the picture offensively, that changed so much. They gave him so much more. And then um, he was so key. I, re, you know, I remember Game Seven against Phoenix uh, to win that series at home. Sam had a big, big day that day. You know, just showing that he wasn't going to back down in the, you know, in the glare of the spotlight. And then uh, one of the biggest shots I think in, in Rockets history uh, was Game Three in the NBA Finals in New York when Sam hit a hit a big three-pointer from out front uh that was kind of the 
you know, the, the big basket in a, in a win that put the Rockets up two to one, they would eventually lose the next two to go down three, two. And then as we know, it came home and won six and seven, but you know, if he doesn't make that shot in game three, uh, they're looking at losing all three in New York. Um, and then, you know, um, the series, you know, the series is over and five in the mix of the world champions. So, yeah, Sam Cassell was just huge, uh, as it turned out, and, and a, a, just a, a tremendous rookie. And, you know, for a guy that was drafted, I think, uh, you know, relatively low in the first round, uh, what a what a find he turned out to be. Yeah, Daryl Morey could appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, one of the things you mentioned earlier, and, and I want to get back to it, was the uh, Phoenix series. And really, it, it's kind of that when – you know, the choke city, clutch city. And I think a lot of people here at clutch city today and it, you know, you, you had to be 25 or 30 to have any real memories of the Rockets championship. So just to set the scene for those who are listening that might be too young or who didn't grow up in Houston in the eighties and early nineties, uh, the significance for, for us, for the people that went through it was, you know, leading up to this Houston sports had just the series of devastating losses. You mentioned some of the Astros blue, you know, late three-run leads in the 80 and 86 NLCS. One of them would have put him in the World Series. One of them would have put him in Game 7 against an unhittable Mike Scott at the time. Then you had, And you mentioned the 83 Cougars and the NC State disaster in the championship game. The Oilers blew those three lit leads early in the 90s, including the Bills' catastrophe. So the city at the time, there was this sense of we're jinxed. And then the Rockets, who, at you know, they were – after the Denver series, as you mentioned, they're practically the favorites to go to the finals, and then they lose the first two games at home. S- set the scene, if you would, with that. You know what happened? Do you think with the Rockets after those first two games, where where did they get the strength, the confidence? Was was Vernon Maxwell? Wasn't he one of the guys that you know just would not let this team go down? They they had the lead. They blew the lead big lead in game two because it was almost like they were uh, holding the ball, sort of like a football team or a, or a basketball team holding the ball and trying to run out the clock. Just remember that they got very defensive. They were, you know, trying to run the shot clock down, and Phoenix was so explosive. You know, they had Danny Ainge, and, and, and they had Kevin Johnson and, and, and Barkley, and those guys just put on a great run and pulled that game out of the fire. Um you know, they went They went to Phoenix. Uh, it just they, – they had a practice on a Saturday before the, the third game was going to be on Sunday Sunday evening. And it, it didn't seem like they were devastated. It just seemed like they had uh, a firm resolve that let's just go out and try to win one game and let us, let's see what happens here. And they got down in game three, I remember, uh, again – and this is crazy, but a guy, little known guy that they picked up late in the year, a guy named Chris Gent, came off the bench and kind of was a spark and got him back, you know, got him back uh, in the game, playing hard, you know, just making some deflections and, you know, defensive plays. And the second half, they played great and they, they won that they won that game. And, and, and it was just like the momentum just – switched again i think it, the pressure went back to phoenix because 
you know, they're up 2-0, and okay, well, uh, we lost a home game. Okay, well, we got to win game four. We can't let it go. We can't, you know, let it go 2-2 after winning the first two on the road. And really, the Rockets, you know, just took it to them in game four. And, you know, it was back even. Then it was a home series. The home team won the, the last three games. But, you know, it wasn't a sense of panic. I think the Rockets disbelieved in themselves. I think that what they decided was that we just, uh, we took the, you know, we took our foot off the pedal and we tried to just, you know, uh, melt the clock. And you just can't do that against this team. If you stop attacking, you know, um, this team can can really hurt you. And so they were just in a full throttle attack mode, playing as hard as they could. And lo and behold, they won two games in Phoenix, which nobody uh, at the time uh, believed they could do. And, and once that happened, um, and then again, as I said, the, the fans who the arena was not uh, full for game two and the players criticized the fans. Boy, when they got back home for game five and, and for the rest of the playoffs, you talk about the, the place jumping. The, the summit, I've never seen it as, you know, as, as electric as it was for game five and game seven against uh, Phoenix and then uh, – they had a pretty easy time in the conference finals against the Jazz and then uh, uh, obviously against the Knicks in the finals. It was just a, a you know, magical time. I think the fans really responded to the player criticism. It's like almost like, hey, we, we didn't do our job. Now we got to, you know, you guys went to Phoenix and won two games. We're going to be there. We're going to do it for you. Know, we're going to help you now. And so it was just like the, the team and the city all came together at once. What do you remember about that, uh, speaking of the Western Conference Finals, that uh, infamous Utah Jazz stop the clock episode, besides Gene Peterson, Jim Foley going berserk over it, which you can find online these days. Uh, what, what, are, what are your memories of that? Oh, that was great. What happened, the, the clock operator, he didn't try to cheat the Rockets. The Rockets, I think, had a, had a basket lead or one-point lead in uh, the last 20 20- Utah had the ball for the last shot, and uh, all of a sudden uh, they're working the ball around, and the, and the clock just just stops, you know, for several seconds. And the play goes on, and, and uh, the game should have been over, but it kept going, kept going. Well, finally they they made the stop anyway. They got the stop, got a defensive rebound. In the meantime, uh, everybody's going crazy. Everybody knew the clock had stopped. Uh, what happened was the, the clock the clock operator he just froze. He got him. He got mesmerized by the game and just forgot to start the clock. I remember Gene and Jim, you know, just going crazy. And Jess Kersey, the veteran official, just like you know, was always you know just very deliberate. And he comes over to Gene and Jim at the you know, the radio guys, and, and they're, like, screaming at him. And Jess Kersey goes, I used to respect you guys. And Foley says, no, Jess, you don't understand. The clock, the clock never started. And so then Jess looks down, and he goes down, and he, you know, and they get it all figured out. But as it turned out, it was just a mistake by the clock operator who froze and got mesmerized. He got transfixed by the game and didn't didn't start the clock. Really? Had uh, Utah scored there, it would have been a major, major controversy. But it turned out it was a moot point because uh, the Rockets uh, uh, held them on that, made that stop, and, and and won the game. Well, speaking of bizarre, it just kept getting more bizarre as the season went along. We go to the finals, and the night of the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase at Madison Square Garden. Have you ever oh, been yeah. part of a crazier, more bizarre night as a sports reporter? 
No, I really haven't. Actually, the documentary that ESPN later did, I think June 17, 1994, uh, I thought they really showed it very, very well. Of all the things that were going on, you got OJ out on the threatening to com- commit suicide on a LA freeway. And meanwhile, the Rockets and the Knicks are trying to play, you know, game five. You got the national media running from the, you know, from the press row uh, back to the uh, to the press room to check out all the updates on OJ. And there's going to be an OJ press conference every, you know, 15 minutes. It was just a bizarre, bizarre night. Amazingly, that later when that when the trial started, OJ actually referenced, I think, the game three. He had talked about he was watching uh, the game three of the Rockets Knicks series. So. Who would have believed that the Rockets Knicks series would be intertwined in one of the great trials of all time involving O.J. Simpson? But what a bizarre scene it was, and it was just like almost a surreal experience. I mean, we were at the game, we're at Madison Square Garden at the NBA Finals, and yet everybody was just like, "What is going on in L.A.?" I think you had Bob Costas uh, trying to trying to navigate uh, the the O.J. Uh, situation and then also the uh, the game it was just a really a surreal experience what do you remember about the locker room after game seven with with dream after the rockets win the championship and you know give us a couple of maybe uh dream stories from from maybe that season after they won the championship the after game seven it was different than any locker room when you go in the locker room for so many years and so many games this was like different than any other situation because there were no more games. All the plastic was up and the champagne was out and there were just people running around crazily. It's just different, you know, and then finally the players came out and they were able to, you know, able to speak some, but, but mainly they were just kind of in their own world. Uh, Very hard to just talk about one game when you've just won the world championship. I think everybody, just sort of didn't really realize what all what had happened, and then I remember actually walking back into the uh, coach's room was behind the locker room, and this was like later. I mean, this is like maybe an hour, two hours after. Go back, you you finish your story, and then I was done for the night. And then I went back to the locker room. The coaches were all in there, and just kind of like, wow, what 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 just happened? And they're watching television, and they're watching all the honking horns outside. And and I remember Carol Dawson just looking up, and I said, Carol, are you getting ready for game eight? And he just laughed and said, yep, getting ready for game eight. You know, it was just – it was such a, a culmination of something you dream about, and then you get there to the top of the mountain, and I just think everybody – it just took everybody a couple of days to really realize what, what had happened. And then uh, <laughs> later – and I, I wasn't a part of this, but uh, – I had a friend, Rusty San Juan, who worked at uh, at the Houston Post, was a good friend of Rudy's, and the Rockets, you know, had a party after the to celebrate the championship, and I think the party led to another party, and finally, and Rusty told me that at uh, like 5:30 in the morning, they went to a, kind of a breakfast place, and Rudy, and they watching the sun come up, you know, eating hamburgers. And watching people drive to work and just thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, are, are we ever going to be the same? So so what a night, huh? It's just I remember driving home at 3.30 in the morning 
and walking in my house and then actually going back and, and just kind of opening the door and listening and just to hear horns honking uh, going off almost like you hear on New Year's Eve. It was just a, a, an unbelievable experience. Yeah, that was a magical time and everybody out in the streets. I wanted to ask about that Knicks uh, seven-game series. I mean, it was, it was a close contest. It went seven games and you know, yeah. obviously got the best of Pat Riley's Knicks that year. But w- how do you respond to the people who say the Rockets won a title in a, in a Jordanless year? I mean, you still hear that to this mm-hmm. day. A couple things about that. Number one is a lot of people think Jordan was out two seasons. He was not there for 93, 94, but he came back and he was in the playoffs in 94, 95, the second uh, Rockets championship. They did not win. The Bulls got beat. You can say, well, he didn't play most of the year. He came back, you know, right at the end of the regular season and so forth. But I would say just specifically to the 93, 94 season, if you go back and check, the Rockets had a winning record against the Bulls in the the uh, previous two years that, you know, the Bulls won the championships and, and then uh, like 93, 92, 93, of course, 91. But the Rockets played them very, very well and actually had a winning record in the regular season. Not saying that might not have, you know, translated to the playoffs. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. But um, I think that is to sell the Rockets short. You play against who's there, just to assume that the Bulls would have won a, a fourth and a fifth consecutive championship, knowing how hard it is you got to play. I don't know that if Jordan's there, they do that or not. How physically ready would he have been to play after winning and playing uh, 91, winning 92, 93? I mean, that takes a toll. I don't know that the Bulls would have, uh, you know, I don't think you can just say they would have been the champions. That that really sells the short. And also, it also sells the New York Knicks. I don't think they, it's not a given that they would have gotten by. That was a great Knicks team. I'm not sure they get by the Knicks in the East in 94 because the Knicks were what the bad boy Detroit Pistons had been a few years earlier. Just a, you know, knockdown, drag out, defensive. Boy, the way they let teams play defensively, the way you could mug people back in those days, they had a tremendous player in Patrick Ewing, you know, obviously Riley. John Starks was was awesome most of the time, although not in Game 7 against the Rockets. Uh, Anthony Mason was a bull, a power forward. Uh, I don't know that the Bulls get by the Knicks. So uh, the Rockets were a championship. They were champions. Um, my favorite team to cover, may, close second or maybe, maybe 1A was the 86 Rockets, which I think would have won a, a championship if I can digress a little bit except for the fact that they played one of the great teams of all time in the 1986 Boston Celtics in the finals. We'll have to get to that in a, a little bit later on because we're going to talk a little bit about the 86 Rockets. But wanted to a- ask about that championship season again, 93-94. Mm-hmm. And you had watched uh, Akeem Olajuwon for several seasons leading up to the championship. Can you describe his growth as a player and was it something that happened that particular year, 93, 94, or was it a slow build towards the dream of Kim Olajuwon MVP year? Yeah, it was, a, it was a slow build physically. He was right at his peak in those 94, 94, 95. He was uh, 
just the best of the best. He he peaked physically, but it was more than that. Earlier, um, when he didn't have quite the pieces around him, he felt like his best way to score, even if he had to go through a double team, try to split a double team and score himself, he felt like that was a better option than passing it to maybe a guy with a better shot because the guys, you know, around him didn't uh, didn't come through that often. So, you know, where I think that some people earlier characterized him as a selfish player, it wasn't that. He just wanted to win so bad, and he had such great talent that he could uh, he could split a double team or, or take on two or three guys and score anyway, and maybe feel like he had a better chance to score than you know giving the ball to an open guy but he did he did get better as a passer and the trust that he gained in his teammates that was the key when he realized and could feel the double teams and 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 was a willing passer and then the ball started hopping around and the rockets would wind up with you know easy shots or be able to split somebody and drive that's when they really kicked into overdrive and that's when he became really what I consider to be a, you know, an MVP, true MVP type player. And so I think it was, it was, it was two things. It was him uh, maturing, becoming fully ripe as a physically as a player. And then also the Rockets doing a good job of recognizing what they needed to put around him and then teaching him that the percentages, as Rudy said, uh, told me, you know, uh, yeah, maybe earlier he, he felt like, the team had a better chance to score if he just went against a double team and tried to score as opposed to giving it to the open man. But over the long term, and if you want to be a champion, percentages say you can't get away with that. And so when he gained trust in his teammates, which he did in 93, second half of 93 and then into 94 and 95, uh, that's when, you know, that's when he became the greatest rocket ever. One thing that happened uh, that was really strange uh, for you personally, I know, is the Rockets go on, they win the second championship. We'll go back to that in a second, but I, I just want to ask you, uh, the Houston Post shuts down, and it, it was right before the playoffs started that season, right? Uh, I mean, give me the timeline, if you yeah. would, and, and, wh- and what exactly happened to you in the newspaper around that time? Yeah, there were three games to go in the regular season, and I was getting ready. I was packing and uh, packing my bags to go to Utah for a game that night. And I get a call at home that, uh, hey, uh, come on down to the office. Uh, the paper's shutting down. And so three games to go in the regular season. And so I didn't get a chance to uh, actually be the beat writer uh, during the playoffs that year. Although I, you know, I did go to games and, and uh, actually wound up covering some of the games for, for other, uh, other publications. But I did cover the team all all season and was there for obviously the you know the uh, transition with uh, Clyde Drexler joining the team and and uh, again not a not a good regular season I think they were number six seed but again they had the 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 heart of a champion as Rudy said never underestimate the heart of a champion and that was so true in the playoffs when they just kept coming back from the brink of defeat you know time after time and it was just. It was that confidence, and, and it's it's you know they say a, a champion uh, you know is a champion until somebody knocks him off, and, and just nobody could knock that team off. They they had built that character and, and perseverance the previous year when, in '94, and then uh, even though the cast changed a little bit with uh, 
uh, with Thorpe leaving and, and Drexler coming in, uh, once they got to the playoffs, uh, they they found that playoff magic again. And you know, obviously, I will remember the you know how Kenny stepped it up, Smith, and those playoffs, and Mario Alley with the kiss of death, and so on and so forth. Cassell again, um, just adding to what he had done as a rookie. So really, a bizarre season. You just don't really see a team come from you know a number number six seed to to win a championship very often, but. Um, uh, that just really spoke to the character that they had built and and, uh, and the foundation, I think, that, that Rudy had laid. Besides that comeback uh, against the Phoenix Suns, again, as you mentioned, with the Mario L.A. kiss of death shot, I think the one thing that everybody remembers in that playoff just, you know, was when Akeem Olajuwon is in the building there in San Antonio and he sees David Robinson receiving his MVP trophy and then mm-hmm. proceeds to go out and dominate and, and uh, the Rockets um, – you know, win those games and beat San Antonio in that series. And then he goes on to outplay Shaquille O'Neal, kind of cementing him as one of the great centers of all time. Uh, what are your memories of that that particular time or that season in the playoffs? I think it was just Akeem was always a, a great player from the, from the time he came into the league, but very raw and uh, obviously had some maturity issues uh, early in his career, frustrated by – you know some of the things that went on that maybe not that not enough talent around him and and and, and just uh had a nasty contract dispute he almost was traded at one point to the clippers because they you know couldn't get a contract worked out and then you know that's another story but uh the rockets had gone to tokyo to start a season and charlie thomas and akeem were on the same flight <laughs> And they were somehow able to sit down and uh, on that 14-hour flight and iron out a lot of differences. The bottom line was that they wisely did not did not trade him, which they were seriously thinking about doing at one point. What a you know what a disaster that would have been. But Rudy uh, was always the guy that said, "Hey, this guy, we cannot you know no matter what, we've got to you know make sure it works with him." And you know that was a time when uh, players could not leave like they can today. Of their own volition. There was always a matching aspect. Nobody became an unrestricted free agent. That was just a case where, because it was such a contentious situation, they actually were thinking about trading uh, a team. But uh, you know, fortunately for all Rocket fans, that didn't happen. That was around '91, '92 season, and then you know, a couple of years later, there he is, and everybody's uh, living happily ever after with world championship. But he. You know, 94, 95, that 95 season, again, Robinson was great. Akeem had won MVP in 94, and and maybe that did spur Akeem on a little bit. But I think more than anything, it was just that he was right at the top of his game, just an unbelievable, unbelievable player, and had fully ripened and and had the team around him, and he had Clyde that year. And, uh, yeah, he just went out and dominated, I think, uh, San Antonio, and then went on, and they went on and and, uh, and won again, and that was big to get back-to-back, you know, titles because otherwise it's well, you know, they're one season, maybe you know, one season fluke or whatever. I don't, I don't know. You could be a fluke if you win a world championship, but getting back-to-back titles, I think that puts them up there in the the pantheon of really great to uh, some of the great teams in uh, NBA history. And then you you were around in Houston when Akeem and Clyde went through that 83 uh, finals, the NCAA championship. What, what was it like to see those guys 
kind of right what once went wrong and in Houston, which was unbelievable? I don't know. It was almost like poetic justice because to me, and I, and I really felt badly for uh, Patrick Ewing that in a way that he was such a great player and that was his best chance to, to win an NBA championship uh, in 94. But it was almost poetic justice because he had done to Akeem what Akeem did to him in the pros. Uh, Ewing had done to Akeem in college, actually. You know, they had a chance. Uh, Clyde wasn't there, but Akeem came back in 84 after that devastation against North Carolina State, and, and uh, they lost uh, in the finals to Ewing in, in Georgetown. And so Akeem had to go on to the pros or went on to the pros without a, winning an NCAA title. So Ewing got the NCAA title, but then uh, a decade later, Akeem got the NBA title, and, and Patrick never would win an NBA title. So, you know, one got the college title, one got, you know, got it in the NBA. The, both great players. I thought Akeem was the best, but boy, what a what a heyday of centers with, uh, you know, you just don't see that in today's game, the great the great centers like that, uh, the Ewings and, and uh, the Olajuwans and their head-to-head meetings, how great those were. And I will say this, that, uh, again, as we talked about that Knicks-Rockets uh, finals, that John Starks had a tremendous game in game six, and he had a three uh, to win the game. And the way he shot in game six, Akeem, somehow with his great athleticism, came out from the basket and was able to deflect a three-point shot by Starks that you know wound up short. But if he doesn't get a hand on that ball, I don't know that that ball doesn't go in and the Knicks are, are celebrating on the Houston's courts. Just a tremendous play. A lot of people kind of forget that, but that Akeem was able to come out and block that shot, deflect that shot by Starks, uh, or else the Knicks could have won it in six, and uh, you know history would have had a had a different tale. And then uh, once they got to seven. I think the Rockets just, you know, they, it was just their game. They, uh, it was a close game in game seven, but Starks had a really bad game in, in game seven, whereas he'd been great in game six and shot the ball horribly in game seven. And there you are. But really poetic justice, really, that, you know, Ewing got the best of Akeem in, in college, but in the pros, it was uh, Akeem getting the championship. What, what does it say about that particular team? that you have three guys on that team that are coaches now. You have Scotty Brooks with uh, Oklahoma City, and Mario Eli uh, has been an assistant for many years, and Sam Cassell as well. I think that is sort of a portent of things to, to come <laughs> if you've got three guys that are future co- – or a portent of what, what could happen when you have three guys that are – you know, that are, think like that, think as, as coaches, I guess. Yeah, really, uh, that's true. They were – a team that I think was a bright team. They had a lot of guys that really talked about the game and was, was enthusiastic and passionate for the game and studied the game. And even Kenny, you know, Kenny uh, didn't go into coaching, but again, he's got a job where he where he talks about the game on on television. And it was a team that there were a lot of people that you could see even at that time that hey, if they want to go into coaching, that. Uh, that might be a very good avenue for them. Before we let you go here, I wanted to get to the uh, 1986 finals run, which you covered the Rockets during that era as well. That Ralph Sampson shot has to be one of the the greatest shot in Rockets history. I know that some might say the kiss of death because it led to a, a championship with Mario Alley, but that Ra- Ralph Sampson off-balance 
with shot with one second left at the four and to beat the Showtime Lakers and go to the NBA Finals. I mean, that's still any Rockets fan, just a chill down the spine there. I wanted to ask about that because you were at that particular game covering it. And then also kind of what happened to the, the Rockets after that with uh, Samson's injury and, you know, the drug suspensions. How would they have mm-hmm. done if those things didn't ha- didn't happen? Yeah. Well, that that was a, a team again under under Bill Fitch that really ripened and uh, arrived. They just went on uh, a tear. They lost uh, a game one to the Lakers pretty handily at home. And Fitch said, "Hey, if we don't play better, this thing will be over in a hurry." You saw why the Lakers are the World Championships, so on, so on. Really, you know, they really killed them with kindness. They came out in game two, and. Uh, Really put it on them. They, uh, Lewis Lloyd was a, a great scorer. Rodney McRae was one of my favorite guys. You know, uh, young King Sampson, uh, before he hurt his knee. I mean, could have even been better, uh, if they'd had John Lucas, who, um, you know, because of a, a drug situation was not with them in the playoffs, but Robert Reed stepped up and played great uh, as a actually as a point guard. Mitchell Wiggins, uh, great six man. I, again, that that team was I believe they could have been a world champion in many many other years. They just happened to be you know eighty six was a year when the Boston Celtics forty and one at home. Can you believe that? I mean, what a team they were. Well, you know, the Rockets, you know. Kevin McHale, a big part of that. Uh, Bird Parrish, you know, Danny Ainge, Dennis Johnson, uh, Jerry Seasting. Um, one of the great teams of all time. But I believe if, if in another year, you know, that 86 Rocket team would have been a worthy champion. If you put the 86 Rockets against the 94 Rockets, I don't really know who would have won. Um, I, I believe that much uh, that, that the 86 group was a special team again they just ran into a great Celtics team and then the Rockets were a little bit young and Lewis Lloyd had a bad finals but uh, to me that was the second best team other than the 94 team I was at the 94 team and then the 86 team and then the 95 team I believe the 86 team was better overall than the 95 team wow that's interesting well I want to ask you one final thing just I know a lot of people out there wondered, where's Robert Falkoff? You know, they, they've read you for 15 <laughs> years in Houston or, yeah. or longer than that. What have you been doing recently? What are you up to right now? I'm living in Kansas City. I kind of have had an interesting, uh, after the, the post closed, I covered the SEC. I covered Ole Miss for five years. I got to see some, uh, some great SEC football and basketball. In 2001, I moved to Kansas City to work for MLB.com and cover uh, the Royals and I did that for a while and um, and then was kind of a general assignment reporter. And now I'm kind of semi-retired. I work part-time. I still cover games uh, for MLB.com. Next year will be 40 years since I started in sports writing, so I feel like I've had a pretty good run at it. You know, you you were here at, at the seminal time really in Houston sports, and uh, it's just fantastic to – talk about that with you and i know you you have a real passion for just what happened here and and those teams as well no problem i I really appreciate you guys having me on as i said uh that's a a great uh, treat for me to go down memory lane especially uh to talk about that uh, 94 uh team and and uh boy it hardly seems possible uh that it's been 20 years but uh 
you know, we all know time flies. It's a great anniversary for the city and for those guys, and I hope that all those guys in the organization have time and all the players, uh, everybody is, uh, is doing well. So there you go. What a trip down memory lane. That was so much fun with Robert Falkoff. If you're interested in reading his books, I still see both of them available on Amazon. I checked. They're both there. The first one entitled Dreamland, the inside story of the 93-94 Houston Rockets championship season. The second one, Rudy Tom Jonovich's biography. It's called A Rocket at Heart, My Life and My Team. And hey, how strange would it be if Tillman Fertitta took a page out of Les Alexander's playbook and won a title in his first season as the owner. Thanks again for listening. And if you're new to the show, subscribe to Houston Sports Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, or the TuneIn app. If you have an Android device, download our free Houston Sports Talk app. You can keep up with this show and my daily Locked On Texans podcast on Twitter and Facebook or by going to HoustonSportsTalk.net or LockedOnTexans.com.